Get ready to listen, learn, and earn CE hours. This podcast features content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Hello and welcome to a very informative discussion on COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Leanna McGuire, your host for this Elite Learning Podcast, and our guest is Dr. Daniel Griffin. Dr. Griffin is a physician scientist, board certified in internal medicine and infectious disease with expertise in global health, tropical medicine, parasitology, and virology, including SARS-CoV-2, also known as COVID-19. Welcome, Dr. Griffin. Oh, thank you so much. I have quite a few questions for you. This is an interesting topic we're always asking questions about. So COVID-19, we're all aware of what it is, having lived and survived 2020 and beyond. Have most of us been exposed at this point? So we we think so. Um, you know, the latest data suggests that um, over 90% of people have been infected. I, I know people are out there thinking, well, well, not me. And I'm one of those people who thinks not me. So th- there are a few people out there le- left out. We're going to have a big party at the end and, and get them infected. But um, you know, it, it's estimated that 97% of people in the United wow. States have had some form of immunity, either from prior infection or vaccine. Um, and a lot of people have, have both. The majority of Americans actually probably have both. Right. Interesting. And what is COVID-related mortality? Where do we stand with that? You know, it's interesting because it has changed over time, certainly, Um, but not not as great as I think we wish it had. Mm. So, you know, early on, the the case fatality rate was 2%. So what does that mean? Case fatality is if you have, you know, a bunch of cases, let's say 1,000 people confirmed, they've got COVID-19, about 2% of them did not make it. Um, that has dropped down um, to 1% or mm. lower. So it has dropped. Um, you know, a lot of us thought it would drop lower, right? We, we talk about vaccines that have tra- should have dropped at 90%. We talked about effective therapies that should have dropped it at least, you know, in half just by themselves. Um, so there still is, unfortunately, a significant um, case fatality rate out there. We're still seeing three, 400 deaths a day, but we're not at 6,000. Oh, my. Um, right. So, yeah, just to give... Um, you know, we're celebrating at a number that we would have been horrified prior to this pandemic. And those mortality rates, would that be predominantly unvaccinated or are you seeing a mix of both? So it's changed over time. Um, you know, what what has happened is, you know, over 90% of the highest risk individuals, right, have some form of immunity. Um, so we're we're now shifting to the point where we're starting to see the majority of deaths actually are in people who are, are vaccinated. Um, but couple of sort of caveats here. 90% of the deaths are in folks over the age of 65. Mm-hmm. Um, among those, um, it's predominantly people that have multiple medical problems. The other side, though, to point out is 10% of those deaths are people under 65, right? Wow. So we've seen, you know, hundreds of children um, succumb to this virus, uh, most of those deaths during Omicron. Um, so we're, we still continue to take this seriously. It's still a, a significant threat. We're still seeing lots of people dying. Um, vaccines do a bunch. Um, but as we'll talk a little bit later, uh, that's not where it stops. You want to you want to just not rely on vaccines alone, but you want to add on to that. Okay, great. 
Now, I'd like to talk to you about testing as well, because we keep hearing, I mean, I keep hearing, I'm sure others have as well, where I tested negative, but I'm sure I had it. Um, <laughs> are home tests reliable? Or So they're reliable to a degree. Okay. And the two degree depends, you know, when used properly, um, you know, so one thing is nothing's 100%. Um, and the, the rapid tests are not 100%. So that's just important to start with. The other is timing matters mm. and repetition matters. Mm. So, you know, if you're just starting to get symptoms, um, you know, and we don't know if this is because of prior immunity, we don't know if this is because of the different variants, um, but some people will be test negative during that first day and not start to test positive until the next day. Uh, um, and some folks, actually, it's the following day. So um, most of the home uh, tests now have a recommendation in there to do a test um, the next day. So not that first day of symptoms, but the second day. And if that's negative, to actually go on and get another test. Um, still higher sensitivity with those um, PCR tests. Um, you know, and, and if you're an individual who's at high risk, um, because timing matters, um, you know, you may not just stop with those rapid home tests. You may want to actually look at getting a second test to confirm. Got it. And while you're waiting a day or two to test, I'm assuming isolation would be a good idea if you're having those symptoms. Yeah, I mean, if, if, if you might have COVID and you're waiting to find out, um, you really don't want to be out there spreading it to others. Right. Okay, great. Now, um, what about ventilation? Does ventilation make a difference? I've heard that it does. You have good ventilation in your home, or is that just a yeah? So it tale? really does. Okay. Yeah, Ven ventilation is is huge, um, and, and I really think we we haven't used the resources, we haven't used the tools. Um, you know, this is a, a dilutional thing. You know, when you're within three to six feet, okay, you're you're within sort of the highest risk zone. But once you get outside that zone, if you're in a poorly ventilated space and you're there long enough, if a person with COVID is there long enough, um, we're still seeing infections. So ventilation is important. I mean, the, the best ventilation is you're outside in the great outdoors with a nice airflow. Um, but if you're indoors, particularly those suburban homes, those apartments, um, cracking the windows, if you have, um, you know, AC or heat, leave the fan on. Don't turn it. Don't turn it to auto and have it off and on. Particularly when you have folks in the house. Um, so, no, ventilation um, has been shown to significantly reduce the risks. Interesting. That brings up another question: Is we often see people? I, I hear people criticizing those who are out walking their dog with a mask on. Do you feel that that's a necessary uh, precaution when outside? So. One thing we've learned, and, and I think this, you know, scaring the wrong people issue is that, you know, if you're out and you're by yourself and you're walking the dog, um, your risk of getting COVID is, is pretty much nil. You know, there, there are crazy viruses that can blow across the English Channel. Um, SARS-CoV-2 is not one of those. So, no, if you're out and you're walking your dog, if you are driving by yourself in your car, you certainly don't need an N95 on. I'm not sure there's much utility at all to masking in those situations. So, okay. you know, it, I think we should start following the science, um, you know, take a deep breath. And if you're out walking the dog, enjoy that. Yeah, there you go. And if you're criticizing someone for walking their dog with a mask on, stop. <laughs> Well, I think, I think that's the other. Yeah, let's let's not mask shame people. Yes, um, for, exactly. For yeah, for a lot of us, this has been traumatic, uh, particularly if it's a person with you know immunocompromised. Um, this is still continues to be scary, and now maybe it's a little bit scarier now that we're losing our monoclonals. So you know, if someone is wearing a mask and they're comfortable doing that. Um, I have to say, when I was in Japan, a lot of the young ladies would wear masks just because they didn't want to do their face, they would tell me. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe that's what's going on. <laughs> Did save a lot on lipstick. There is that. 
We'll talk about the monoclonals in a little bit. That's an interesting discussion. Uh, talking about masks, when they started lifting the mask no, uh, mandate, did were there increased cases? What was the result of that in your findings? Yeah, so that that was actually um, one of the areas where we, where we got, um, I'll, I'll say, good data. There was a state where it was lifted incrementally. So certain schools, they, they continued to just keep the masks. Other schools, they would reduce the, the mask use, basically say no more mandates. Um, and we, we clearly saw an increase in cases in the schools where the masks were taken off. Um, you know, and, and we'll try to put this in a little bit of perspective. So, um, you know, masks, particularly if you have COVID, um, whether you're asymptomatic or symptomatic and you're wearing the mask, there, there's a great benefit for everyone else for that source control. Um, also, there is some benefit to wearing a mask yourself if you're in a setting where that other person um, has, has COVID. Um, so what we saw in those schools was that the mask would come off and then the schools where the mask would come off, you would see an increase in cases and actually gave a sort of a count of how many cases were, were um, sort of associated with the lifting of those masks. Um, but the other side is that we now have, and we'll keep discussing this, we now have highly effective vaccines. Mm -hmm. We now have a population where 97% of the population has some form of immunity. Um, you know, and I don't want to forget about the immunocompromised who are in a tough situation at the moment. Um, we have effective medications. We're also stopping using things that were harmful, right? Mm. I mean, we, we're just looking at, I was looking at a paper today where early use of hydroxychloroquine may have actually resulted in more people dying. Wow. Um, early use of steroids actually caused some people to not survive who would have survived if they had been left alone. So, oh. um, you know, vaccines, highly effective therapies, getting rid of things that are harmful. Um, so COVID is here to stay. So part of the mass discussion is, is what are we going to be doing going forward? Which measures are more or less acceptable in these different contexts? Should we be returning to masking? You know, I, I think on an individual level, I, I've never been a huge fan of, of mandates. Sure. Um, you know, I think it created a lot of, of tension, mm. um, I usually, um, I, usually on the side of education, explain people what the benefits and risks are. And masks went sort of back and forth. Uh, so if, as we discussed, you're a person who's a high-risk individual, um, if you're going to the supermarket and for you, you know, getting any respiratory virus, including SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, um, is, is going to be a major risk, then there's really no downside if you're comfortable with wearing a mask in the supermarket, wearing a mask in a crowded indoor setting. Um, recently, um, my daughters went to a Broadway show in New York City, and they wore masks, a very crowded, very dense, not necessarily the best ventilation. Um, so there are the situations when it makes sense to wear a mask. Um, but then the other side, we talked about um, someone out walking their dog. You really don't need to do that. Okay. Um, so I, th I think it makes sense for people to understand the science and, and when it may or may not make sense. So on a plane... For example, you know, so I, I do wear a plane. I do wear a mask on a plane, and, and the highest, you know, the highest risk is is in that, um, you know, getting onto the plane, right? So you're all crowded together. You're in the aisles. Um, once you're in your seat, it's the people around you. Um, so you know, lower risk. So if you if you're going to wear a mask, um, you know, wear it the whole time. That's great. If you're only going to wear it part of the time, it's really the getting on the plane, getting off the plane that are the most important. Got it. Excellent. So if you've been exposed and have tested positive, can you clarify for us how long you should isolate and why? Yeah, so this, this has been a challenge and, and controversial, but uh, I'm sort of amazed because we have a tremendous amount of, of data of science here, and we have pretty soon three years mm. of science here. 
forget about which variant, just in general, you are the most contagious during the first five days, right? So it starts a little bit before symptom onset, and it's really that five days from symptom onset that we see 90% of the transmission, mm. not 100, but 85, 95, 90%. Okay. Uh, during the six to 10 days, there is some degree of transmission. Um, and that's when we talk about if you're going to go back to work, if you've got it, that's the wearing the mask, that's not eating in communal areas. Uh, so really, the clock in most cases is the most reliable, the calendar is the most reliable. Um, I know there's a lot of discussion about testing, um, you know, and should I test? And does that tell me? Um, we try to correlate that culture positivity and mm. negativity. You know, if it's day nine, and you get a positive antigen test, it's 50-50 that you're going to be able to culture antivirus. And if you get a negative antigen test, it's also 50-50. Mm. So um, really, um, I don't encourage uh, the testing as a way to find out. It's really the clock. But then again, if you're someone who's immunocompromised, if you're someone who had a really severe case of COVID, then there are some situations where we may see infectiousness beyond that 10 days. Interesting. Okay. There's also been a, a lot of division on the topic. So let's talk vaccines. Uh, <laughs> effectiveness boosters, et cetera. Yeah. So, okay. So vaccines, first two, three doses, really, I think that, you know, very clear, compelling data. You know, the data, we were surprised, you know, 90% reduction in people ending up in hospital, 90% reduction in severe disease. Um, but then boosters, particularly the bivalent boosters this fall. And there were two sides to this. One was, are the new boosters any better than the old boosters? You know, and that, that was a bit of a controversy, you know, slightly higher antibody levels. What does that mean? We're not really sure. Um, targeting BA4, BA5, which are really not around, maybe 10% of the, so targeting a variant that's already gone. That was sort of what a lot of people were saying. You're going to be chasing your tail. By the time we hit December, January, those variants won't even be around. So what are you doing? Um, mm. So that was one side. The other was what, what's the real world data now that we have it on how well do those boosters work? Um, you know, and it's just listening to the MMWR report. They have a podcast today and they're saying significant reduction. Well, what is that significant reduction? It's about 20%. Mm. So really getting a little bit more with the boosters, still encouraging those boosters, um, but not saying everyone has to get them. You know, if you're a high risk individual and you can reduce your risk by 20%, then boy, that's certainly worth doing. Yeah. Um, but if your risk of severe disease is already zero, um, you know, a 20% reduction in zero is still zero. So. Good point. Are we looking at a future of uh, annual boosters? Is this going to be like a flu shot or is it going to be tailored to the current vi variant at the time? So I think we're going to learn in the next few months here. And I think the next few months are going to be critical. So th there's two ideas on, on how, the, how the vaccines are working. So one is the being antibody B cell dependent. Mm -hmm. um, and we have these new variants now that are basically resisted to the, to the vaccine-induced and the monoclonal um, antibodies. So is the vaccine protection against severe disease really T-cell-based? And the T-cell-based is much more durable, uh, much more reliable, much harder to get through. So in the next couple of months, we're going to see, do we need to keep boosting those antibodies? Or once we get that memory T-cell, are we going to have the protection we want? So mm. um, a lot of people have, have decided they can tell the future. I don't think we quite have the science yet. So <laughs> science will tell us. Interesting. 
Now, let's talk about uh, with the actual phases of infection. There's hypoxic and non-hypoxic, et cetera. Can you go through that for us and talk to, talk about those? Sure. And I think this this is really important. Mm-hmm. The timing of COVID-19 and understanding the timing is important as an individual, what to watch out for, but it's also really important um, when it comes to treatment. So the first week is this viral replication, non-hypoxic phase. It's when you feel crummy. I've got a fever. I've got a headache. Everything hurts. You, you feel sick. Like You feel like you've got a virus. And really, the only way to tell whether it's COVID or not is to do a test. Um, that's the time when a lot of our frontline antivirals are effective. So that would be uh, Paxlovid as our, our number one uh, choice. Then um, in some situations, we have access to IV remdesivir during that time. We've lost our monoclonals. We still, in some cases, have malnupiravir. Um, during that first week, when you've been vaccinated, maybe you've had prior infection, um, when your immune system is trying to fight off the virus, this is not the time to turn it off with steroids. Um, and we've seen that if you do that, if you treat a viral infection, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19 with steroids, you actually increase your chance, or if you're the provider, you're increasing that patient's chance of progressing to week two when they get this early inflammatory hypoxic phase. Okay. So week two... Um, starting, you know, about day eight, nine, ten. Uh, so that second week, this is when we see that cytokine storm, that pulmonary phase, when the virus has started to go down. Um, there still is some detectable virus, particularly with PCR, um, and this is when you start having, in some um, cases, trouble breathing. This is when your oxygen saturations might drop below ninety, ninety-four um, percent. You've missed your window of opportunity for Paxlovid. There might still be some benefit for remdesivir if you're still within the early part of that second week. Um, this is when we start looking at immune modulation with things like steroids if that drops below 94%. Um, so really timing is really critical. Um, and you know, I tell a lot of patients, hey, it's first week. Let's say we treated them. Um, it's week two when I say get one of those pulse oximeters, start checking your oxygen levels. Um, I need you to call me if that drops below that magic 94% because we, we may want to step in. Is Paxlovid appropriate for everyone in that early phase? So no, it, it isn't. It isn't. The, the science would not say it's appropriate for everyone. Um, you know, it was studied to do what? Prevent progression to severe disease. Um, so this gets back to this, well, if your, your risk of progression to disease is zero, well, what, what are right, we doing right. with Paxlovid? Yeah, so, okay. Um, just sort of to go through. So if you're a high-risk individual, maybe you're over the age of 65, maybe you're carrying too much weight, say that nicely, maybe you've got multiple medical problems. There, there's a list of different um, uh, factors that might put someone at a non-zero risk of progressing, ending up in the hospital. So Paxlovid can reduce that. Um, early studies, pretty impressive, 88, 89% in the unvaccinated cohort they looked at. Um, the real world data, we're getting about a 50% reduction, a little more than a 50% reduction in ending up in hospital, um, ending up in that severe disease group. Um, the other thing we don't know, and we don't know, and I think it's important to say, is, does it prevent long COVID, which is another mm. severe uh, disease manifestation? Um, some early data, encouraging, suggestive, um, but we don't know. So the current indication, the current recommendation is not for everyone. It's for people at risk of progression. Same case with uh, remdesivir, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's the same. So our therapies are Paxlovid, or remdesivir, or malnupiravir. Not for everyone. It's for individuals who have a, a risk of progression, um, and we're hoping to reduce that. Um, if you are, you know, 25, 
if you're healthy, if you're ideal weight, if you're active, no medical problems. It's not clear that we're going to do anything helpful. Okay. Um, and you mentioned steroids is something that should be avoided in that early phase. Anything else that we should avoid? Yeah. I mean, the first week, remember, this is a virus. So whenever I read these articles about it, we're having antibiotic shortages because of all the respiratory viruses. I'm sort of shocked. What are what are people doing treating viruses with antibacterial agents? Um, yeah, there, there's no role. We, we've looked at you know those Z packs, which mm. you know, people say, oh, it's anti-inflammatory. No, it is. It is not. Um, and if it was, that would be a bad thing. Um, so no antibiotics during that first um, that first week. Um, a lot of other things out there that hopefully have been dispelled won't give them any air. But there's a lot of unproven therapies out there that are still being encouraged, but the science does not support them. So let's let's not do things that are harmful, things that are unproven. Uh, let's not lose the opportunity to do things that can make a difference. Excellent. Um, so variants. We've lived through a few of them now, including uh, Omicron. Uh, in fact, we recently heard say they're keeping their eye on a variant called XBB right now. You can probably talk more about that. What do we need to know about current and future variants? Yeah. So X XBB, there's, there's a good and bad side to XBB. Um, mostly a bad side. We'll start with the bad side. <laughs> Um, so the the bad side to the newest variants that we're seeing is is they have actually um, been really doing well, com out competing, you know, fitness wise, the other variants, um, you know, starting to spread in India, starting to spread in parts of Asia like Singapore. We're actually already seeing them starting to uh, spread here in the United States. Um, the particularly the XBB and the XBB group. Um, are resistant to neutralization by all of our monoclonals. Um, they also tend to be highly resistant to um, sera from people that were previously infected and people that were vaccinated and even people that had both. Wow. So this is really antibody evasive. Um, and this is going to, well, what's the good side to this, Dr. Right. Griffin? How can there be any good side? Um, so the only potential good side that I see is this is going to answer that question. Do we need to keep boosting? Do we need to keep relying on antibodies? How much can our T cells do to protect us? So that's going to actually inform us from a science point of view. If it turns out we really need those antibodies, well, then we've got to update our vaccines. We've got to up, update our neutralizing monoclonal antibody treatments. When you say that, that we need to update them, that's not an overnight process, correct? No, it, it's really not. Um, it, it takes, you know, well, but it does, it takes weeks, not months well, necessarily. Well, and then they have to get passed, though, at certain point, FDA, that process. Yes, yeah, so the, the regulatory part might take longer than the actual producing sure. them, right? We have great systems in place at a lot of labs where they can do these pseudo-virus neutralization and also a, a number of these high BSL-3 level labs where they can do real virus neutralization, test the antibodies, see if they work. And because all the modeling you do, you really need to actually test and see if they work. Once you show that they work, once you show they can neutralize, then wonderful hurdles of getting through our regulatory agencies to hopefully get them out. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. Um, there's quite a, there's actually a fair number of cases, aren't there, in the U.S.? Uh, we are seeing lots and lots of cases, yeah. And I think the, you know, the the one hard number that, you know, is is easy to put, you know, your finger on is is deaths, yeah, right? Yeah. We're looking about 400 deaths a day. We're looking at, you know, almost 3,000 deaths a week. That's just enormous. Um, hospitalization um, rates are going up. Uh, so, yeah, it's uh, 
there's a lot of virus out there. Right yeah. Now. And those 3000 a week, are they specific to XBB or is this any of the previous no, variants? Yeah. At this, yeah. At, at this point, XBB is just coming okay. to see in the United States. It's still less than 10%. So we'll be seeing that, you know, 20%, 40%. That's going to be probably by January, really moving it as a dominant. Okay. Um, so some people think they can see into the future. <laughs> Yogi Bear says that's the hardest thing to look into. (laughs) Gotta love that guy. Yeah. So are we, do you think that potentially we're looking at another, you know, closing borders, isolation, shutdown potential, uh, not to, you know, I'm, I'm not a fan of anticipating or building fear, but could that be a reality based on the new variants and, and, uh, the way they attack? Yeah, I mean, from from the science standpoint, from, you know, here we are, it's the time of year when a lot of people are together mm-hmm. indoors. Um, you know, I, I would be surprised if we did not see an increased number um, in cases, an increased number in, in deaths. Um, I do not think we're going to get back up to 6,000. I actually am one of the folks in the school of, I think our T cells are actually going to come to save us all. Um, you know, I also don't know if uh, there's much of a political will or even if it really ever made a lot of sense, a lot of these border closures. So hopefully realizing that it, it it's not helpful, um, it's harmful, um, you know, let, let's do things that we've learned to make a difference. So, yeah, I mean, I think as we get into this, um, a lot of things we've learned. So we've learned about the importance of vaccines and having immunity. I think a lot of people have gotten it either way, voluntarily with a needle or by breathing. Um, the other is we now have, uh, you know, understanding about ventilation. Outdoors is safer than indoors. Um, you know, people are a little bit more intolerant to folks showing up uh, for an event, uh, coughing and sneezing and, and obviously sick. Yes. Uh, we do have testing. So uh, those that want to make a, a difference can actually prevent themselves from showing up during that asymptomatic period. Um, I think we've learned a lot. So, yes, COVID is here to stay. Um, it's going to continue to impact us, um, but we're not where we were, you know, in the early days of 2020. Thankfully, thankfully. This is a fascinating field. You must, uh, I mean, as as dreadful as a lot of it's been, there must be just a lot of, just so much education on a regular basis and information that's coming in um, to keep track of from your perspective. It's got to be exciting on one level. I hate to say that as a, you know what I mean, but it's uh, it's an interesting time yeah. for for your practice. No, it, it, yeah, it continues to be a fascinating time for infectious disease. And my, my hope is really that we, you know, we continue and we have, we've learned a tremendous amount. My hope is we continue to learn a tremendous amount, um, not just about COVID, um, but also learning about other respiratory pathogens, learning about RSV, learning about flu, learning about, you know, all these rhino enteroviruses mm-hmm. that were circulating. Um, also learning about um, all these post-infectious syndromes, right, that people have been troubled sure. with. Um, I think we're getting better insights into the chronic fatigue, um, ME-CFS, into people with post-Lyme, um, you know, and, mm. and while a lot of people are struggling um, with post-COVID conditions, um, you know, we're, we're learning more and more about what's going on. So I am hoping, I am enjoying that aspect um, just the tremendous amount of knowledge um, and and the idea that that's going to lead to um, you know people benefiting from all this information. It's um, 
It's been an interesting time uh, when I think back on the naivete of uh, most uh, most people over the last several decades. Um, it's really brought forward the fact that we are vulnerable to such a degree. Do you see a future where other pandemics may raise their ugly heads other than COVID at some point? Yeah, I mean... You know, to be realistic, right. right? We we were anticipating a pandemic. Okay. We we anticipated another pandemic. It's, um, you know, it's kind of a question for human. Um, you know, how often do these happen, and and what is the agent that drives it? Right. We were expecting and preparing for a flu pandemic, um, and we got a coronavirus yeah. pandemic. Um, and getting a coronavirus pandemic does in no way move the influenza pandemic possibility off sure. the table. We need, you know, we need more effective uh, therapies um, for flu. Um, you know, we, we probably need home testing for flu, right? So we can use a lot of what we learned here. Um, the advantages, right, with flu, um, you know, if there is a flu pandemic, or should I say when there's a flu mm. pandemic, is that most of the transmission is when symptomatic. So that's going to help us to some degree. We don't have as much asymptomatic transmission. Um, yeah, so, you know, most of us are, are expecting, and, and I don't think sky falling, just, you right. know, sort of the deep breath of, yes, this is our reality. We live in a world, none of us are immortal. Um, there are viruses out there, um, and hopefully we've learned a lot. Um, so we don't do things like close borders when that's not useful. Um, you know, do a lot of stuff that's uh, theater. Um, really, you know, what is the science? What can we do to keep ourselves safe? right? And just the pure mobility of mankind now and travel—it's uh, it's going to move around. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's the challenge. Within 24 hours, you can get from really any yeah. spot on the planet to another. So, um, yeah, and that, that's not going to change. And the other, you know, and this is just a reality, human beings like being around other they human do. beings. They just <laughs> do. Um, and, yeah, it was tough for a couple of years when we couldn't be. That was, uh, it was a real challenge for a lot of folks. Okay, well, Dr. Griffin, knowledge is power. And uh, we as health professionals are more than grateful for your expertise today. Thank you for taking the time to inform and educate us. Uh, and our listeners. And thank you for listening today. We've talked about the significance of timing for testing, the impacts of ventilation and masking, isolation and vaccines, and a little bit about variants. So we would like to continue the conversation in episode two. Please join us for the rest of our podcast in the next episode. This is Leanna McGuire for Elite Learning by Calibri Healthcare. This podcast featured content from an accredited CE activity provided by Calibri Healthcare. Visit EliteLearning.com slash podcasts for accreditation and disclosure statements and instructions on how you may be able to earn CE credits. Take your learning to the next level by subscribing to more podcasts on compelling healthcare topics.